are in uh, week three of our series in Matthew chapter 23 that's entitled, I'm Not a Pharisee, Am I? Now, I want to tell you, several years ago, my uh, family and I, we were able to go on a uh, vacation to Alaska, and it was a great trip. We had a lot of fun. One of the things we did on that trip is we took this, this excursion, this boat, out into the ocean for the express purpose of seeing whales. And uh, it, was, it was something we were all looking forward to. And so we get on this boat with a bunch of other people. And you head out into the ocean. And along the way, you might see a seal or something like that, you know. But that, that's just, you know, that's just riffraff. You're, you're there to see the whales, you know. And so you make out into the ocean and you just sit there in the spot that the crew believes is the most likely place to see whales um, in the ocean. And so we're sitting there. Now, the, the boat is pretty good size, and below deck there's this area you can go and, and sit and get you know, refreshment or hot chocolate or something, get out of the wind. And, and so when you get into that place and you're just sitting there waiting, it just feels like an eternity. And, and you're just waiting and waiting, and you see nothing, and they keep saying, this is the spot, and you're like, where's the spot? And no whales are coming, and then pretty soon people get a little bit bored and they start to wander around the deck and looking and looking and they go in underneath and they get out of the wind and then all of a sudden this huge whale just burst out of the ocean you know maybe three or four hundred yards from our boat comes all the way completely out of the ocean up to the, the very tip of its tail and then just flops down and creates this huge tidal wave it's in a, it was an amazing spectacle to see the thing just jump out of the ocean huge whale. When that happens, everybody on the boat that's watching is ooing and aahing and screaming. And then everybody that's under in the, in, underneath the deck, they start running out to see what, you know, and all they saw is this surge of ocean water. You know, that's it. No whale at all. And they'd spent all that money and all that time and all that effort, and they missed the whole point of the boat ride. I mean, can you imagine Sipping hot chocolate, that's one expensive cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> now, hypothetically speaking, if one of my family members was one of those people, I suspect I might be needing to go back to Alaska. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 23. Now, let me summarize what we've done so far. You, you can kind of summarize verses 1 through 15 with this statement. Don't do what the Pharisees did. That's pretty much the gist of it. We don't want to do what they did. Now, Jesus described these guys in such a way that they are people who are acting like something that they are not in order to gain something for themselves, and they have no intention of changing. They are just fine. They think they are just fine the way they are. They're acting like something they are not for their own benefit. And Jesus is calling these guys again and again hypocrites. I established already the last several weeks that there are not uh, a lot of hypocrites in this place. In other words, there's not a lot of you who are trying to act like something you're not with no intention of changing, completely satisfied with the way you're doing things for your own benefit. That doesn't describe most of us here. Most of us find ourselves instead in degrees of hypocrisy. And, and ultimately, the point of this whole series is we're moving away from any degree of hypocrisy. But we talked about the first degree of hypocrisy, and that's just acting like you are better than you are in a particular moment. So that somebody comes up to you on Sunday and says, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing great. In reality, you've been struggling with some sin. And you just 
decide in that moment that you don't want to be honest about it. You just hide a little bit. And that's just a moment in a decision, and you really feel like, man, I wish that I hadn't made that decision. You feel some regret. You don't want to go there again the next time it comes up. You may even later call and say, hey, I said that I was okay, but I just want you to know I'm really not okay. But, but that moment was the first degree of hypocrisy. That is one step in the wrong direction. The second degree of hypocrisy is when you just stack up a b- bunch of those moments. And then pretty soon, after you stack up a bunch of those moments of hiding temporarily, you are actually starting to become someone that you are not. You don't want to be there again, but you do it so much, those moments stack up and it creates a sense of feeling like you're a little trapped. How do you, how do you come to a place where you really tell somebody that you're not the spiritual leader that you've appeared to be? How do you get to the place where you just... We just confess that you've not been the the wife that God's wanted you to be. How do you get to the place when you convey that, you know, you probably think that I'm spending time with the Lord every day of my life seeking to honor Him because I'm here on Sundays and I look like I have it all together, but in reality, I'm really struggling and I'm tired of hiding. And that, that is repentance. When you confess those things and you say, I don't want to be in any degree of hypocrisy. But those degrees are where we struggle. And we certainly know that if you start in the first degree, the next step is the second degree. If you get to the second degree, the next step is the pharisaical degree. And that's where you hear the woe to me, this threat, this warning of eternal judgment. We don't want to hear that. We want to move away from every degree, any degree of hypocrisy, as much as possible. And that's why this chapter, Matthew 23, is warnings. They are warnings to the Pharisees and the scribes, but they are actually invitations to you and I. Invitations to escape the threat of eternal judgment and to enjoy the rightness that comes with responding to Jesus Christ. Invitations to come to Christ. Jesus has given us several of these woes, and let's look at two more this morning. We're going to look in verse 16. We're going to read through verse 24. So we'll look at two more of these woes today. He starts out by saying, Woe to you, blind guides, Now, right there, you should notice something different. If you look back in verses 13, 14, and 15, you're going to see this phrase, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then Jesus changes his address, adding a new choice word to his description of these guys by calling them blind guides. Now, what he does not mean is that these guys are helping the blind. He is not saying you guys are actually helping blind people, whether they're literal or spiritual. He's saying of these guys, you guys are actually blind and you're guiding blind people further into spiritual blindness. And we're going to see exactly how Jesus unpacks that in a moment. But I want you to understand this blind guides here is not an affirmation. It's a further indictment. It's just as significant as the statement hypocrite. It's just another choice epitaph. So he says, you blind guides, and he said, then he says, who are saying, and then he's going to say what these guys are noted for doing. 
And he starts by saying, whoever swears by the temple. Now stop right there because this idea of making oaths or swearing is something we've already seen. We, we, we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus made it clear in that passage that those who are interested in following Christ, those who are interested in entering the kingdom of heaven, who are interested in the righteousness of God, need to be a people that don't need to swear or make oaths. Now when I say swearing, you need to translate it as making an oath, pledging one's truthfulness, not cussing, okay? So when we're, when we're swearing, you're making an oath. He says, if you're following Jesus Christ, that's unnecessary because as one who follows Christ, your words should suffice for truthfulness. So your yes should be yes, your no should be no. Whatever you say should be absolutely truthful as one who follows the king of righteousness. So Jesus establishes right there that this idea of truthfulness is very, very important in the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus again addresses this issue of the words that you speak. In Matthew chapter 12, he, he says, every word that you speak, every word, even the ones that are carelessly spoken, will be brought to an account on the day of judgment. So every single word we say matters before the Lord. So much so that everything is a follower of Christ that comes out of our mouth ought to represent the truthfulness that's found inherent in the righteousness of Christ. And now Jesus brings us full circle in dealing with this idea of swearing or making oaths again in relationship to a practice of the scribes and the Pharisees. So they practice verifying truthfulness by making some particular oaths. And so Jesus is going to bring this out to indict them and give us insight on why these guys are in trouble and what we should not do if we don't want to hear a woe for ourselves. He says, whoever swears by the temple, well, that's, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, he is obligated. And then Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, morons, blind guides, or fools. That's another choice word there. And so Jesus is making it clear about these guys that they are way off base. You guys are fools. And then he tells them why they're so foolish. He says, which is greater, the gold? Or the temple which sanctifies the gold. You guys are morons. Because, not you guys. The scribes and the Pharisees are morons because they've got it backwards. They are actually saying that the gold is more significant than the temple. Because they're saying if you make an oath by the temple... Nah, not a big deal. Oh, but if you make an oath by the gold of the temple, you better do it. He says that's foolish. Because the gold of the temple is made holy by the temple. Now look what he does next. Verse 18. And whoever swears by the altar, well, that's, that's no big deal. That's nothing. 
But whoever swears by the gift which is upon it, he is obligated. You blind people. For which is greater? The gift or the altar which sanctifies the gift. Again, he tells them, you've got it backwards. You think that by saying something like this, that gives evidence of your truthfulness. But you're swearing by something less significant, not more significant. You've got this all mixed up. And then he continues his rebuke in verse 20. He says, therefore... The one who swears by the altar swears by it and everything that's upon it. And the one who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And the one who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits upon it. Jesus just clarifying for us why he has said woe to you, to the scribes and Pharisees in this matter of making oaths. Certainly it's dealing with the issue of truthfulness. Because where oaths are needed, truthfulness has been diminished. Where swearing is necessary, some level of unrighteousness has creeped in. But Jesus has gone further here than that. He has made us aware of exactly what the Pharisees are doing that make them blind guides. What they're doing here is they're defining what is most important and they're using their own definitions for what is most significant to ensure their own truthfulness in the midst of their own unrighteousness. Now why is that so significant? Think about this. Jesus says that the gold is made special because of the temple. And then he says the temple is significant because of the one who dwells in it. You follow that? Same true about the sacrifice. The sacrifice, the gift, is significant because of the altar. But why does the altar have any significance at all? Because that's an altar to God. You swear by heaven? Great. No problem there. But you understand that that oath to heaven is significant because the one whose throne is there. And that throne is significant because the one who sits upon it. All significance is defined by God. God is the one who defines what is significant, what matters most. What is the measure of rightness? These scribes and Pharisees had been defining what was the measure of their truthfulness by something that absolutely left God out of the equation. They were teaching people that the less significant things were more significant than the most significant things. And they were failing to bring in the reality that God is the one who defines it all. It's God and His holiness that defines what matters most in our lives. And if we apply this just to the way we speak, we ought to walk away from this woe to me 
with every intention to make sure that every single word that proceeds from our mouth is measured against the holiness of God, not what somebody else is saying, not what somebody else approves, not what somebody else thinks, but what God thinks about everything we say. Everything in our life is measured against the significance of God. In fact, we want to make sure we look at it properly in this context. Everything in life gains its significance from God. The gold is only significant because it's attached to the temple. The temple is only significant because it's where God dwells. The sacrifice is only significant because it's on the altar. And the altar is only significant because the altar is God's altar. And heaven is only significant because God dwells there. And his throne is only significant because he sits on it. Every bit of significance, the measure of rightness, exists because of God. If we want to move away from every degree of hypocrisy in our lives, let me give you a couple of thoughts how you can make that move. How do you define the significance of your job? Is your job significant because of the amount of money you are paid? When you get that paycheck and it's more than you were making three years ago, Do you feel like you have gained significance? Is your job, your career significant because of what other people think about your career in your job? Is is it the cultural opinion, the societal opinion about the value of your occupation, the reason why you find significance in that occupation? Is it because of the value that you bring to our society within your occupation that gives your occupation significance? If you have adopted any of those mindsets, and I'm telling you, it's a temptation for all of us. If you've adopted those mindsets, here's what you've done. You've called the gold more significant than the temple. You've called the gift more significant than the altar. You've called the throne more significant than God because you've moved away from God defining and giving significance to all things. And you've begun to define, whether it's cultural, societal, or just within your own self and your community, you've begun to define what is significant apart from what God says. The only reason your job is significant is because of what God intends to do with it and through it in your life. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what the society thinks of your value towards our community with your job. What gives significance to your occupation is what God intends to do through you in the midst of that calling. So when you go to work and you draw a paycheck, do not experience any sense of value or significance from that. No, you protect yourself from that. You begin by asking the Lord, Lord, why is it that you have given me this occupation at this point in time, at this stage in life? Why have you placed me here? What is it that you want to do through me where you've placed me and begin to see your occupation as a vehicle for God to do something in you and around you that you only can accomplish for the kingdom of God. 
God has placed you where you work so that your work can be a vehicle to helping people know Christ. You know what gives significance to what you do every single day of the week? It's what you do for the kingdom of God where you are through what you have to do in your responsibilities. It's how you bring glory to the kingdom of God that gives significance to all you do. And if you don't have Christ as the measure, God as the definer of significance, you will drift into hypocrisy and begin to believe that you are something that you are not. And we don't want to go there. We don't want to be a people who's spending Monday through Friday or Saturday working 50, 60 hours a week just to bring home a paycheck, just to accomplish something in the society and leaving the kingdom of God out and think that we're being Christians in this community. Our occupations are simply meant to be vehicles to bring the glory of God to the people around us that are missing the gospel. Define significance by the measure of who God is and do everything you can to leave every degree of hypocrisy. You can apply it to your marriages the same way. I'm just going to mention this very briefly. I want to keep moving through the text here. But think about your marriages. Why is your marriage significant? Is it significant because it's supposed to bring you great joy? Is it significant because it's supposed to bring you companionship for the entirety of your life? Is it significant because it gives you the opportunity to raise children? Yes, all those things are true and possible, but the significance, the root of the significance of marriage is found in the way marriage can display the gospel. It is about what God intends to do through marriage that makes marriage significant. If you see your marriage any other way, then you're redefining significance and you're leaving God out. Everything in our lives needs to be lived with, in the full view that God and His holiness is the measure for significance. We're going to move away from every degree of hypocrisy. Verse 23. Jesus returns to this familiar phrase, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Because you tithe of your mint and your dill and your cumin. If you don't know what cumin is, get in the kitchen. And you neglect the weightier things of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things are necessary to do while not neglecting the others. Blind guides. You swallow gnats. You strain out gnats. But you're drinking down camels. Jesus uses this coveted subject. The subject you all want to hear about every time you come to church tithing. And He makes it clear that these Pharisees are concerned with tithing all the way down to tithing their garden plants and herbs. Which, by the way, is above the law. The law does not require one to give of the increase of their dill, mint, and cumin. It requires to give the increase of their income. But there's nothing in the law that gives 
provision for these garden plants. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're using this display of concern for tithing down to the minutia of the garden plants to create a picture that they are very, very spiritual. They really are concerned about the things of God. And Jesus says, the whole time that you're giving this display of being so concerned about the things of God, which you should be doing, you're neglecting the most significant things. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, Jesus doesn't go into the details on how these guys are neglecting justice, faithfulness, and mercy. And really, it's not necessary to get Jesus' point because he makes his point abundantly clear when he brings up this little picture. You guys are straining out gnats, but you're swallowing camels. I don't know if you've ever swallowed a gnat, but if you've done much fly fishing, you've probably swallowed a bug or two. Um, it's not a pleasant experience. When you swallow a bug, it's, it's, it feels like it's much bigger than it really is. You ever notice that? And, uh, you know, gnats in the Levitical law are unclean. And so what the Pharisees apparently were doing was they're making every effort to put strains on their drinking uh, water so that they would not accidentally swallow a gnat. So they're going to all this extreme here in order to keep themselves appearing to be clean. But the whole time what they're doing is swallowing a camel. Now, I suspect that swallowing a camel would be pretty difficult. We require a lot of effort. In fact, I brought a little prop here for us this morning. This is a very small camel. Now, this little camel is a gift to me from one of our military guys brought from abroad, and it found a purpose in today. This little camel, I mean, can you imagine just swallowing this little guy? This is not, I mean, this is not going to, I'm not going to try it, but can you imagine? Jesus has just said, you guys are straining out the smallest of things while you are gulping down things that are enormous. You look so spiritual, but you are so unrighteous. Why? Because they were spending most of their life on what was less significant instead of spending most of their life on what was most significant. When you think about what Jesus has said about this gnats and camel thing, I think we need to think about in our own lives, are we, are we doing things in our lives to give the appearance of being spiritual that are really less significant then more significant things that we're neglecting? Are we swallowing, are we straining out gnats at the same time swallowing camels in our lives in any degree because we want to move away from giving our lives towards less significant things and move towards giving our lives towards the most significant things? Let's think about you and I. We come to church. Quite a bit. Some of you come more than once a week. Some of you come most every time the doors are open. Some of you come almost every Sunday in a given month. 
Some of you may make it here two or three Sundays and give a month. That's still pretty good. I mean, if you look at yourself compared to the national average, we're all doing pretty good as far as it means coming to church. We want to be nice to people. That's good. That's important. I mean, we need to be good people in our community. No question about that. Those are good things. We want to do activities in the church. Those are wonderful things. But, but are we simply straining gnats in doing those things while we swallow down camels of neglect by never spending time in God's Word throughout the week? Are, are we making sure that our Sunday experience is not straining out a gnat while all week long we are the furthest thing from what we've sung in here together, swallowing down a camel? We can paint the picture like this, too. Um, when it comes to the big sins, you know, like adultery and addictions like pornography, stealing, you know, just habitual theft, slander. I mean, we're talking gossip on steroids, slander, all out. I mean, we talk about the big things. Most of us in here are doing a pretty good job keeping most of those big things out of our lives on a regular basis. But are those, quote, big things more significant than what we would call the smaller things of daily letting God's Word infiltrate our hearts? Daily taking a position of humility in prayer daily seeking after Christ so that our jobs will be a vehicle for His glory, daily seeking opportunities to share Christ with others, daily walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, walking with Christ, knowing Christ is the most significant thing we can spend our lives on. There is nothing more significant than knowing Christ and helping others to know Him. And I propose that if you don't spend most of your life on the most significant, your chances of avoiding the, quote, big sins greatly diminish. But even if you are able to avoid all the big sins that we harp on all the time around here, it won't matter at all if you neglect the most important. It doesn't mean anything. It just gives the appearance of being spiritual, swallowing gnats, straining out gnats while all the while you're unrighteous on the inside because you don't know Christ at all. Swallowing camels. You see, you don't want to spend the, the excursion of life in such a way that you miss the breaching well of knowing Christ because you're just sipping hot chocolate of less significant things. You want to spend your life on the most important things. Moving away from every degree of hypocrisy. Do you know that you and I only have three things to spend in our lives? Three things. You have time. You have your abilities. And you have your possessions. That's the only three things that you have to spend. That's it. And so I want to ask the question, 
Are you spending your time, your abilities, and your possessions mostly on what matters less or mostly on what matters most? Jesus intends us to see these two woes together. You notice in verse 24 we hear blind guides again. It's how we started, that's how we finished. You put those two together, and this is the question we're faced with. Knowing that God defines what is significant, are you spending most of your life on what is most significant? God is the measure of how you're spending your life. I want us to respond to the Lord today. But there is one way that is the right response. And everything else is wrong. So let me just quickly tell you the one right response today. The one right response is related to and revealed through the cross. If you leave today and you think that the right response is to leave here and do everything you can in your life to create Less reasons to hear woe to you. You're going to be greatly disappointed because the fact is every single one of us is going to do something this week that necessitates from Jesus Christ woe to you. I mean, if you look at the past trek record of our lives, chances are pretty good that the rest of our lives off and on we're going to do something that falls in the category of missing the measure of Christ's holiness. So the, the way to respond today is not to go out here and just be more determined than ever to never do anything to get a woe to you. No. Don't leave here with the intention of modifying your behavior. No. There's one right way to respond. And that one right way is revealed in the cross. Jesus Christ took the full penalty of our sin. He bore the complete wrath of God. All the woe to you was poured out on Christ. So that if we come to Christ in trust and faith, we will receive forgiveness. And that fear and that warning of woe to you is removed from us. And we get to respond to the invitation of God's wonderful grace that's found in Christ's forgiveness. And when you respond to this truth that way, by coming to Christ and yielding to Him and surrendering to Him, then we receive as a gift from Him the indwelling Spirit of Christ so that now we are empowered to live a life by Christ and His grace that is leaving behind more and more degrees of hypocrisy, moving closer and closer to the righteousness of Christ that He gave us so that one day we have hope that He will rescue us from this body of death and we will forever say goodbye to any degree of hypocrisy. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to surrender to Christ. We've got to come to Him, depend completely upon Him, and trust His Spirit to empower us to move closer to no degrees of hypocrisy, looking for the glorious day He comes and takes us and removes this body of sin. That's how you respond today. Humility, surrender, trust in the provision of Christ to rescue you from your hypocrisy and draw you into godliness. That's the only hope we have. So when we come to this table today, we have great reason to come in humility.